0: After tonight's service, and so glad that you're here, especially if you're visiting, we uh, you find us in the middle of our uh, our exposition of a series. We we take books of the Bible, we break them down line by line, and we discover bit by bit what good truth God would have uh, have us learn and apply and love through His gloriously, beautifully, authoritatively inspired Word. We find ourselves in Colossians chapter one, verse nine to fourteen tonight. I don't know um, how many of you went to university uh, but so, or, or, or you know what throw back to high school even um, they did exams then too whenever you find uh, uh, your teacher or your lecturer saying something like this is going to be on the exam you're always you're, you, your ears are supposed to spring up and you underline that part of the book you, you underline the section that you're learning there because that's one of the things you need to study there's lots of superfluous things you're told in university can I get an amen all right, some of you uh, are yet to, to know. Uh, there's a lot of wasted money, a lot of wasted hours, a lot of wasted energy at university. And sometimes you only need to hear those few things to be able to pass the exam. That's the truth. It is not that way in Scripture. Do not in any way hear me saying that by way of application. But the point is that when you hear Paul or Jesus Christ or one of the apostles say a a sentence in the Bible with, I pray that... Whenever you you see maybe in the the life of Jesus, we mentioned this last week, whenever you see it say, and Jesus prayed that, always tune in right there. That is a cheat sheet for the Christian life. If Jesus is praying for it, if an apostle is praying for it, you absolutely want to be fulfilling it. You absolutely want to know what whatever Paul is praying for, that's exactly how you want to be living. If if you could sit down, Paul, and say, uh, what do you think the Christian life should be? How should the Christian life be lived? What should I do with my life? How do I be a better Christian? The answer to that question is always the same answer to, hey, Paul, what are you praying for me about? And so in this section, we find Paul say, last week was, I give thanks for all these things that I'm seeing in the gospel, that it's bearing fruit in the world and increasing and in you and increasing. And Jesus is glorious, amen, hallelujah. And then he gets to this section, these five verses, and he's saying, and here's what I'm praying for you Colossians. And what he says is universally applicable. So our our minds tune in when he says, I'm praying for these things among you Christians. We want to know what he's praying for so that we can also pray them and also so that we might see this this little cheat sheet in here for the Christian life. So here, the word of the only living, true and triune God, verse nine. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May God bless the reading of his own word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. There's a three-strand theme or structure to Paul's prayer tonight. You understand this? You're gonna understand a lot of the Christian life, you understand this equation? You're going to understand a lot of uh, how, the, how to relate yourself and your life to the New Testament. The reality is this. In verse 9, he says, I want you to have knowledge of Jesus. I want you to have knowledge of God's will. That's his overarching will. Secondly, he's going to say, so that that knowledge becomes fruitful, obedient, God-pleasing life. And then lastly, he's going to say, and all of that, is on account of the fact or on the basis that God has already saved you gloriously in the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's your three parts. Basically, it goes like this. Since God has saved you, I want you to have a knowledge of your salvation so that you can live out your salvation in your life. It's saying, I want you to have a knowledge of Jesus so that you can experience the power of Jesus in your life because, you, because of the fact of the finished work of Jesus for you. That's how it's going to work. It becomes for us a, a pretty simple equation. Look at, look at verse 9. Let me just show you where I'm getting this from in the text so you can break it up mentally. Verse 9, he prays that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that, verse 10 starts, so that you might walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of Him, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, full endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father. Full stop. That's the second part. I want you to have a knowledge of all things so that you might live the life that I'm explaining here with His strength, with His might, with His glorious power and all that. And then he says objective statements. These aren't really prayers. He's not praying that God would transfer them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of his son. He's, he's simply saying that these are facts since you have been transferred, since the finished work of Jesus Christ is objectively true, since it has been applied to you by the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Since that's the case, therefore I'm praying these things. Here's how it looks. The equation is this. I'm going to take verse 13 and 14, put it over here. Then we're going to look at verse 9, and then that's going to equal verse 10 through 12. God's finished work for us through Jesus Christ is what he talks about in verse 13 and 14. That being true of you means that you're a regenerate, true, born again, in Christ, Christian. If God's work has been done, if you have been transferred from darkness to light, if you have been delivered and forgiven of your sins that's objectively true that plus your knowledge of that fact that being true of you and you having an understanding of what salvation is and how it came about and what God's will for you is in this life and and all of those things the, it being true of you and then you having a knowledge of it equals a glorious God-pleasing life in Christ If you lose either one of the first parts of the equation, you are unable to live the glorious, powerful, God-pleasing life in Christ. So let's pretend that you have the verse 9 part, or you're seeking the verse 9 part, okay? The knowledge of Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God's will, the knowledge of the Bible. However, verse 13 and 14 are not true of you, you have not already been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. In other words, you're not actually born again. You're not a true Christian. You have not been regenerated. You haven't been spiritually resurrected. You have not been placed into the kingdom of Jesus. But you seek after a knowledge of Jesus. You seek after an understanding of the gospel and an obedience to the Bible and all of that. What you're going to then have is a dry, unspiritual joyless, destructive, soul-decaying life that, you, that is filled with legalism and all sorts of uh, works righteousness. I'm trying to work, I'm trying to know Jesus, I'm I'm learning all these things at church, I went to the Christian school, I I, I had a Christian family, I did the catechism, I I, I do all that I can to try and strive after a proper knowledge of the gospel, but without already having the work of God done in your heart, you're striving after wind, you're you're leading your your, your soul into a desert and you're, you're drinking from dust. Let's take it the other way. Let's take somebody who has genuinely been born again. They're a Christian. God has transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into light. They are a new creation. They are a Christian headed for heaven. But they know nothing of what that means. They don't know the knowledge of God's will. They don't understand how they were saved. They don't know what they were saved for, what they were saved to, or any of that. You're also going to have a, a joyless but misled and powerless again Christianity. Life that the end result is still the same that you're not able to live a life that is powerful by God's working and that is pleasing to God and worthy of the Lord, which is the verse 10 to 12 portion. You can't what you need is both. You need to be both truly born again, The, 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 the work of God for you or to you needs to have been accomplished. And then you need to start coming into an increasing, understanding, a a broadening, deepening, heightening, growing knowledge of that salvation. And then what that brings about when those two things are together is a truly pleasing life to God. Some of you have not been born again and are trying to live a life pleasing to God by increasing your knowledge and striving after law. And you cannot please God. He refuses to be pleased outside of Jesus' finished work. He's impossible to please outside of Jesus finished work. If you have not been transferred from from your dead life, if your dead soul has not been transferred and transplanted into Christ's kingdom. If that has not already happened, God is not pleased with you, will never be pleased with you. His one command is find refuge in Jesus. Stop striving. Stop trying God can't be impressed with you. He'll never be impressed with you. He's the father that calls you to be made right through his son, not a judge that, that gives you a 10-point list to go and improve and then return. Some, of you, some others of you uh, know salvation, uh, you know that you are saved, although you question it sometimes, but you don't have a functional, deep, growing dedication to theological truth, and you are therefore living shallowly, and quite idolatrously, you're worshiping a god you don't understand much. Thinking that salvation means you don't get sick anymore. Thinking that the spirit means that you get to declare all sorts of job promotions and and uh, name and claim uh, healings and things like this. You think that spiritual authority means means something other than walking in righteousness and 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 moving forward the mission of the church. So that yes, you're saved, but you're uninformed. You'll therefore be unfruitful. And Paul would have us be saved, that's God's work. Knowing about our salvation, that's our that, that, that that's knowledge of God's work, and what that produces is our good work. Our good works in life are always, always secondary to a mind and intellect filled with spiritual understanding. And that's where we start. So look at verse nine. Now that we've had we've had that summary, <clears throat> the rest of the, the sermon will make and the breakdown of the text will make perfect sense for you. <clears throat> if not, we've got Q&A after this where you can ask your questions. <clears throat> Verse 9, he says, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray with you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and in all understanding. To Paul, to the apostles, mindset is everything. Everything. If Paul can change your mindset about something, he, he just changed the way you view everything. If I can, if I can give you a, a pair of glasses to wear through which you see better, you, your whole life is different. I, I, I've known mates, and maybe you've seen videos on YouTube or whatever. Maybe you're planning to do it to your mate. Bucks parties who go out and they convince their friend that they're going to take them bungee jumping, or they've convinced them that they're going to take them uh, 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 parachuting or cliff diving or something like that. And, and and they put them on the car and they pretend that they're they're going on this big long drive and here here the buck is blindfolded and they've got they've just gone out to the back of some mate's property and off they go. They stand them on this plank that they think is 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 thousands of feet in the air, is hundreds of feet above a gorge or something like that and, and what a friend will do is pretend that the, that the strap is broken, pretend that the parachute is last minute not going to work and so don't let him fall, don't let him fall. He, he is thinking, I, I better not fall. I, I stupidly am trusting my, my friends right now and here he is standing on this plank a foot above the ground and somebody shoves him or bumps him or pushes him and he believes himself to be falling to his death for about half a second and he lets out the most feminine shriek you've ever heard. Now, there's some people who live their life as Christians, blindfolded, dangling over what they believe to be a great precipice. At any moment, they can lose their salvation. At any, any moment, they're going to they're gonna fail at everything. They're going to fall away. God's going to judge me. He's chasing me. Because of a false mindset, maybe about sickness, maybe about mental health, maybe about suffering, maybe about whatever it is, there's a false mindset so that it's like a blindfold. And if a good friend could just come up and tell you, You're actually only a foot off the ground. It's not a precipice. It's a small ditch. It's not a parachute on your back. It's a Hello Kitty backpack. You're not in danger right now. If they could just speak truth into that mindset, nothing has to change. And the guy just went from deadly danger and fear to complete calm. So, so, so don't let you grow a mindset or even think of churches, and I hope you don't think this way about us, where you go, I don't like the practical, here's how to live your life churches, I like the theology church. Or there's some pastors that I listen to online and they give me the good meaty doctrine, but then I really like these guys who give me the, the practical side of Christianity. We cannot divorce them. And probably the theological understanding of the Bible is more practical than the how-tos you're getting the seven steps on how to be a good dad, the six keys to how to fix your marriage, the five steps on how to receive God's blessings are less practical than an understanding of your right standing with God through Christ, are less practical than how you should relate to the local church. It's less practical because you, they haven't fixed your mindset. If, if, when Paul just gives you a changed mindset, it changes everything in your life. And he doesn't need to micromanage everything else. He's turned on the light switch for the whole Christian life. That's what he believes to be happening here. He's saying, I want to pray for your knowledge because that will create a thousand other answers to prayer in your life. So here he is praying for all spiritual wisdom and understanding, a fullness that they would be filled with spiritual wisdom. Do you remember back over the last few weeks as we summarise or sort of take clues from the text that what the heresy was that was endangering the Colossian church That there were false teachers coming around and and they had some kind of mix. We could tell by what Paul says. They've got some mixture of of legalistic Judaism saying you need to obey the law and do the festivals. Some mixture of Jewish worship of angels. Some inclusion of pagan philosophy and pagan wisdom. And some inclusion of worshipping the vast array of gods, not just one God. And you can tell by the way Paul pushes against all those different things throughout the letter that those were the temptations. Well, there's there's one thing that was on offer then and continuing through church history by the Gnostics, which was a, a fullness of knowledge and wisdom. That it's, it's, it, it's cool to hear that you have Jesus but there's a fullness that's on it. Don't you just wish you could know the future? Don't you, you could just talk to God and hear every morning, what should I do today? Don't you wish you could just, just roll a dice and figure out which gal you're supposed to propose to and figure out when you're supposed to have kids and how many and which job and which house and what what the income's gonna be and all of that? Don't you just wish you had the, the full access to knowledge? And Paul's swiping that off the table and saying, you have access, you have the ability to be filled with, with knowledge and wisdom, spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom, the heretics don't have anything to offer you. He's saying, Yeah, when he says knowledge of his will, we could be tempted to sort of take that on face value and think like Romans 12, verse 1 and 2, this is him saying, if you renew your mind, you'll know God's will for your life. Colossians 1 9 is not talking about God's will for your life, it's talking about God's will overarching for the whole world. He's saying that if you have this all spiritual knowledge and wisdom of his will, if you look at the way that Paul talks through Colossians, and of course in other letters, you see that, that he's really talking about the overarching will of God to reconcile all things to himself through the cross. But he has a, an overarching will for the nations that they would that people would be saved throughout them all and that they would bend the knee to Christ as lord he has this overarching will for the church and that she would be made holy and beautiful and and, and 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 glorious and that's the will that he's talking about the plan of god the mission of god the purposes of god that's what he means by you increasing in the in the knowledge of his will that's what he means so that really does include and encompass all theology, all of the Bible, all knowledge about God is going to be included in those understanding, uh, in that understanding. And therefore he's praying that you would have the knowledge of that will or the knowledge of Jesus and salvation in him. You would have that knowledge in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. If I was to introduce you to somebody, an auntie at a birthday party, or you go to a, another church, one where there's a bit more dancing and you sit down and, and somebody introduces you to a friend and says, this is Carl. He has great spiritual wisdom. Your, your initial assumption is not that he's a great theologian. Is that just me? If you sat down next to somebody and they said, this is my auntie Beryl and and she's got spiritual understanding, you'd go, great. What is she gonna try and tell me? It sounds more like you'd assume somebody who can who can see your auras or can, you know, feel your star sign and, and can sense your Enneagram and have this real ethereal kind of Heavenliness about them. They've got the spiritual wisdom. They've got the, the spiritual knowledge. They can read the days and know when Jesus is coming back. They, they got it all. They know exactly what prophecies are being fulfilled anywhere around the universe. They, they've got this, this deeper insight. They can read the Bible, but then read the words beneath the Bible. You know what I mean? We need to realize that to Paul, all spiritual knowledge, spiritual wisdom, being a spiritual person, means that you're somebody who knows the depths and the width and the heights of the glory of the gospel of Jesus. The Holy Spirit-filled person, the person with a spiritual mind in 1 Corinthians 2, is somebody who knows and loves and understands the gospel. That's one of the main things. That's one of the the key markers. You ask the question, what is the marker of somebody being spirit-filled? Friends, it's a deep, profound Practical, applicable knowledge of the scriptures. That's the spirit filled person. Our Christian life, our obedience, (coughs) can never rise above our understanding. Our our life of obedience, our, our transformation, the power with which we live, can never rise above the depth to which we know. So we simply have to ask ourselves how is your knowledge of Christ? It's such a good exercise to just sit down with a, with a friend or your fellowship group or in your home and just say, you got two minutes, tell me the gospel. To so you sit down and go, you know what, distinguish for me, and could you do this, I want you to be thinking, can you distinguish with some clarity the distinction between sanctification and justification? Because that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a soul-saving distinction. Do you know um, uh, the, the, the relationship between God, uh, between Christ's divine nature and His human nature? Can you distinguish the difference between between other atonement theories and penal substitutionary atonement? Do you know what the covenant of grace even is? Do you understand what original sin is? Do Do you know any of those things? Can you define that? Do you know why a guy dying on a cross equals justification and salvation for all those who have faith in him? Do you know what sola fide means? Can you defend justification by faith alone from the text? These are not the rules and the markers and the questions and the interview things that we ask the elders. Friends, these are are things that every member needs to be able to understand. The the way you don't have them, you're not getting kicked out, you're not gonna get get shamed, but you ought to, like Paul, pray that God gives you that knowledge because you, the, the church, and this is what Paul is saying. He's not just saying, don't worry about learning, your apostle will come back. Don't worry about learning, I'll send you your pastor, he'll sort it all out. He knows that that from the helm, from the pulpit, from from the single leadership of the elders, you can only do so much. The job of the elders, the job of the preachers, the job of the apostles was to equip the people of God in the truth of God so that they can do the work of God, which includes pushing back against and fighting those beasts we call heretics. You are the body that needs to be the immune system against error and the response against heresy. Do you know, do you have an ever-increasing knowledge of the truth as it is in Jesus? The, the will of God, all-encompassing theology. This also means, and I think this would have been in Paul's heart as he writes to the Colossians. It was in his heart as he wrote to the Corinthians in the second letter. It was in his heart as he wrote to the Galatians, just desperate that Christians while always learning, we're always going deeper into theology, but we need to kill and slaughter, put a bullet in the brain of your love of novelty. Novelty, and not so much just any particular doctrine, I think is the downfall of many, many Christians today. You've heard the the saying that a a broken clock is right twice a day, right? <clears throat> it's the same with some theologians, some, some people, some Christians who, who, who are actually unsaved outside of the knowledge of saving truth. They, they have not been transferred into Christ's kingdom, but they're Calvinist, all right, or, or but they're Baptist, or, or but they believe this, or but they believe that. So, so they're right on some things, but only because from where they were coming from, that was the next new, impressive, puffing up thing to believe. So yeah, they stepped into truth for a portion of time. Then they went too far. They, were always, they weren't actually chasing truth as it is in Jesus. They had this desire for novelty, always something new, something weird, something that's never been believed before, something that puts me above and beyond the rest, something that will always have people asking me, wow, never heard that before. That's so cool. Church history is so boring compared to this. Kill that. Never come to church and hope that I tell you something that you've never heard before. Pray that you hear something from the word that teaches, that engages, that, that that it adds to your knowledge. Yes, but not we're going deeper. We're never going beyond Christ. We're not moving the fences, we're just digging deeper into the mind of Jesus Christ. So we must have, we must have a a, a desire and a practical pursuit of the knowledge of Jesus Christ with all spiritual wisdom and understanding. <coughs> Next we see that that creates and that brings about, in verse 10 through 12, an experience of Jesus' power. We should have a knowledge of Jesus and now we should have an experience of Jesus' power. He says in verse 10, so as to walk. So, so in other words, the, the knowledge that you should be pursuing is for living, it is for obeying. Knowledge should always bring about greater degrees of obedience. We've said this before, good theology has great consequences in your life. It is also true that bad theology has terrible consequences in your life. It hurts people, it damages relationships, it puts you in precarious situations in your relationship with God. Right theology should always lead to right living bad theology always follows in its wake is immorality. Immorality and unrighteousness. And it just takes time to see it. But Paul's belief is, I'm praying that you would have the knowledge of his will so that, so as to, verse 10 says, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. (laughs) We might get a little bit uneasy by that language of worthiness that you as a Christian ought to be worthy of the Lord Jesus. But of course, in Paul's language, the word worthy, the way he uses that is really to mean to be inconsistent with. He can't possibly mean worthy in the fact that that you're worthy to receive. You deserve to receive the Lord. That's how good you should be living because Jesus is offered always and only on the condition of grace. And you literally, by definition, can never be worthy of grace. So he's not saying that you you would... live a life that deserves Jesus, but that you would live a life worthy of Jesus, consistent with Jesus. You say, he's your Lord. Let me see that in your life. You should have the knowledge so that when you say, hey, Bible says I'm a saint, we should say, well, live consistently with that. You have the knowledge that says, I'm a new creation in Christ. Did you know that? That's crazy. We should say, then live consistently with the fact that you're a new creation. We read and we say, I've been transferred into a spiritual kingdom. I cannot die. I'm I'm spiritually encased in Christ. I'm safe. My salvation is permanent. Live consistently with that claim. Show me that you're somebody who doesn't mind taking risks for Jesus Christ, who pursues after that, which is a permanent gift to you. Live consistently with, is what he means by being worthy of. And then he says that we should be fully pleasing to him. Fully pleasing to him. Some of us are, are too... We're too reactionary and we want Paul to, to be more biblical. And so we say, Paul, don't you realize that actually, because uh, you know, there's justification, which is forgiveness of sins, then there's sanctification, which is a process, and we're always sinful, and then there's glorification. And Paul, what you're doing uh, is that you're confusing the terms, mate, because you, you're never fully pleasing to Jesus until you're glorified. So, so stop being legalistic, Apostle Paul. Get your theology right and come back at, at us when you're ready. We want to say that, that we shouldn't really expect to live a Christian life where we can wake up in the morning, confess sin, pray, and say, I am fully pleasing at the moment to the Lord Jesus Christ. Or like Paul says elsewhere, he says, there is nothing on my conscience at the moment. My detractors are wrong. I'm not in sin. We want to normalize the Christian life where, where we have some knowledge and that sort of offsets the fact that we still have a lingering pornographic behavior and addiction and and I treat my wife pretty poorly, but I do serve quite well, and and you know, no one's perfect, okay? You know, and, and and I know that we're commanded to be to be generous, and I'm super stingy, but I can define anything that is in the Bible. You just ask me, I can do that. And and I and I really attend and I answer the questions and I and I give well, and I know that I'm disobedient and very disrespectful towards my mother and father, but in the grand scheme of things, nobody's perfect. No one's gonna please the Lord fully in this life. And Paul. Paul would scoff at that. Paul wants every one of us to hold before ourselves the very realistic, the very spirit-given ability to live a life that is fully pleasing to Jesus. Now, if you think I'm saying that I, I'm, I'm saying that we can be perfect, then you don't understand what being pleasing to Jesus is. Jesus is not impressed, Jesus is not pleased with somebody trying to be another Jesus. He did that. He was perfect. He fully fulfilled the law. He knows you won't. But since you won't, when you have sinned and confess your sin, you're pleasing to Jesus. When you bring your sin to the cross instead of trying to deny it and pretend some perfection, you're pleasing to Jesus. When you're honest about sin and are confessing it to other people and walking in the, in, the, in the loving and committed body of a church, that is pleasing to Jesus. He's not saying he's pleased by perfection. He's pleased by obedience. So that he both outholds to us grace and upholds to us a very high standard of Christian living. Make no excuse for lingering sin. But do not be discouraged by some phony demand for perfection. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like to be fully pleasing to God. There's four phrases that he's about to use. First of all, uh, in verse 10 here, that we would be bearing fruit in every good work. Secondly, that we would be increasing in the knowledge of God. Thirdly, that we will be, in verse 11, strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And fourthly, in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Now, there are the four ways that we are fully pleasing to the Lord. First is that we will be bearing good fruit, in, uh, sorry, bearing fruit in every good work. It, it doesn't take a lot of explanation, but it's, it's worth saying that when Paul says good works, he is defining them by God's law. Christians can get into a rut where we think, yay, grace, yay, Jesus, no more law. If it feels loving, it's a good work. You know, the New Testament is a lot more ethereal and a lot more laid back. And so if it feels like a good thing, that's a good work. You know, where we're all, it's all a conscience issue, and that's that's not the case. Good works in Paul's writing is always defined by God's law, which defines good and evil. So I would say this just as a, as a helpful little uh uh Trick for you, the three Cs become helpful for us in understanding what a Christian's good works ought to be. First is the 10 commandments. There's C number one. The first commandments define for us good and evil, the moral law always binding of God. Secondly would be the great commandment. That is where Jesus was asked on earth, what's the best commandment? What's the top one? And he says, loving God and loving your neighbor. So that brings together love and law that it should be enough to give us the Ten Commandments, but then he has to come in and say, you're trying to obey that without it coming from love to God and coming from love to man. And on the other side, people want to say, I'm really loving. I'm doing loving things. It doesn't matter that I'm breaking the law. It's coming from love. And God would say that it's not loving. Love is defined by the law. The law fills up love, so do them both. That's, that's helpful for us. You want to know whether your life is filled with good works You go and read the Ten Commandments. You go and read the the Great Commandments to love. And then thirdly, go and read the Great Commission. Because in this epoch of of salvation history, holiness is not stagnant. Holiness is not for display. Holiness has a momentum to it. We've been given a mission to be unengaged in soul-winning, church-building, kingdom-extending work is to be in sin. We were commanded to be engaged in the Great Commission of making disciples, planting churches, spreading the glory of Jesus Christ across the world. So there we go. Are you bearing fruit in every good work? Are you obeying the law? Are you doing so from love? And are you seeking to build the church through the Great Commission? That's one way that you can live fully pleasing to the Lord. Secondly, he says increasing in the knowledge of God, which is funny because we, we thought we already talked about this. We already said at the beginning that his prayer is that you would be filled with the knowledge of God so that you can obey. And then get to this point in obedience where actually one of the steps of obedience is that your knowledge keeps increasing. He's at the same time He's he's rebuking stagnancy where we think, well, I have to remain, you know, I've got an excuse for being in sin, I don't know enough. Only those who know enough can really get rid of these sins. Only those who know enough can really do good works. And he's saying, you've been commanded to increase your knowledge. But also those who think that we can get and we we do know enough. Those who think, well, I've studied enough. I'm, the, I'm in the top 85, 90 percentile of my church, of my peers. Uh, you know, I, I know enough. And and this gives me the, the fair way to just sort of ma- maintain momentum on the mission of good works? And the answer is no. We must always, pull. always be increasing. We never know enough. We never understand when we've been given a glorious, infinite amount of truth in the gospel, in the word of God. We never know enough. Thirdly, he says, be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. He is... Rebuking those who want to do it in their self, self-reliance and strength. You can't do that. God commands you to do it in His strength. And encouraging those who feel hopeless and weak. You can do it in His strength. In fact, this isn't really even a commandment. It's a passive. You're just being told, receive the strength of God. You don't get it. You don't attain it. You don't work for it and receive, uh, receive it actively. You don't grab it for yourself. God gives it. God gives in, in out of His infinite bank of power, according to His, as it says here, glorious might. You will be strengthened, friends, if you've ever, if you're ever getting to the point where you're wondering whether whether there's more that you can take, whether this night that you put your head on the pillow, let it be tonight, Lord Jesus. If the your theology is that he comes back and takes you, pray for that. And your the theology is that you just go to him and, and, uh, and he comes back and resurrects you, I pray for that. I don't, I, don't even care what, I don't even care if I'm eschatologically right anymore. Jesus, do something. Take me. I don't have another day in me. I've got no more prayers. I've got no more patience. I've got no more righteousness. I've got no more strength against the fight of sin. If you feel like that, then this good news comes to you. That every single one of the souls that Jesus Christ has bought by his blood, he gives... He armors, He provides infinite, glorious strength with joy. What a beautiful thing. With joy. Not, not with bitterness, not with striving through, hoping God's pleased with this because I'm giving Him his, his darned obedience. No, but with joy. With the joy of a child who knows their father is smiling on them, though it takes strength and endurance. Yes, we're breaking sweat. Yes, our knees are calloused through prayer. Yes, we lose friends. Yes, we're backstabbed. Yes, we we have to fight fight for truth when we wish we could just cruise. Yes, all of that, but we have God's strength. What can we fear? Take it day by day by day. He will not give you tomorrow's strength today. He will give you this moment's strength for this moment. Be always and ever reliant in prayer on God for the strength that you need, friends. And lastly, in this section, he says, you would be walking worthy by giving thanks to the Father. If you wait for thankfulness to be a, a reaction, you'll be disobeying this command. It's not simply that when you feel thankful, say it. It's rather saying being in a habit of giving thanks and you'll feel more thankful. In so many of Paul's letters, he will reference or command or simply say that he gives thanks to God. That it's this, in fact, it was a part of the Jewish liturgy of the Old Testament. We make it a part of our liturgy in the New Testament church that we are giving thanks to God before we give monetarily. That we are praising Him for good things. That we are not always just confessing or just asking for more, but we're doing those and giving thanks. Because if we don't give thanks, we, we lose sight of the glorious blessings that we've been given in all kinds of measures of ways. But Romans 1 verse 21 is very very powerful here. In the downgrading degradation that Paul explains that goes from a a creature made in God's image all the way down to this degrading culture of murder and parent hating and homosexual cesspit of sin, he says the first domino that falls is that they did not honor God or give thanks to him. The very first step towards idolatry is not giving thanks to God. If you, if you, if you callous your heart and get your heart to a, to a good homeostasis where it can just exist without giving thanks, it thinks you're God. It thinks it's all deserved. You're living an idolatrous life, but to give thanks continually puts, our, puts us in the right context. I'm a receiver of good gifts. I'm a receiver of grace. Thanksgiving should always be on our lips. How many times? Daily? Nightly, you have times of in your week, as a family, as an individual, where you, where you get around and you list graces, that you list gifts that God has given to you so that you can give thanks, so we ought to do as Paul would pray that we do. But now we get to verse the last half of verse 12 through 13 and 14. And this, this is rich. In fact, this becomes the most important part of the, in, the entire text, because this is the basis. What we're about to see, the the finished work of God for us in Christ becomes the basis of what we're about, of everything else we've just seen. Knowing the truth of God is possible because God has made you born again with a new mind. Living out the powerful reality of Jesus is possible because you've been given that power in a new kingdom. Jesus his finished work, I've, I've heard it said this. I think, I think it was Driscoll. He said that there is God's work for us in the cross. There is God's work in us, which is rebirth. And there is God's work through us, with His, which is sanctification, which is the most important. We, we shouldn't try and pick only one. But the basis of them all is God's finished work for us in Jesus. Now look at verse 12. The chief reason we should give thanks to God is that He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's saying you there instead of us because he's speaking to the Gentiles. He's distinguishing them with the inheritance of the saints. Scholars look at this and think that, and realize that he's saying, uh, you Gentiles have been given the inheritance of, of us Jews, of, of, of the saints in light because, and the reason he's languaging it that way, is because a part of the Colossian heresy was to say that, that you, get, you get some inheritance in Jesus. But since you're Gentiles, you're missing out on all the good stuff, the fullness of the inheritance, the the way that you get treated as a son, not just a servant in the kingdom, the way that that you get the, the full inheritance of the kingdom of light, which is, again, pulling on Old Testament kingdom promises and saying there's good things in Jesus, but the way you get everything promised is by obeying our festivals is by going through circumcision, is by obeying our laws, and then you get the inheritance with us through obedience, a little bit of faith, and your own righteousness and good works. And Paul is saying that you Gentiles already share to the fullest degree and the same amount in the inheritance that God would ever pour out on any soul through His kingdom, through Jesus, and by faith alone. There is no such thing as a two divided, two tiered, two type of Christian, right? There'll be Gentile courts in heaven. And when you get on the inner courts, there's the Jewish heaven and it's great, but they don't have bacon. No, there's not two tiers in heaven. There's not two two types of inheritances. There's not two levels of blessing. There's one, it's in Christ. And Jew or Gentile in Christ have the self same inheritance in the spiritual kingdom of Jesus Christ. You, you don't understand, we just cannot fathom how, how scandalous and intentionally insulting it was in Galatians for Paul to say to a church being overrun with heresy that required Gentiles become Jewish in behavior before they get Jesus, he said to them, I don't know what you're talking about, there is no such thing as Jew and Gentile in Christ. You can't become one or the other in Christ. You can be one or the other before Christ. You can be of the generations that grew up reading the Old Testament or a pagan. You can be all sorts of things when you're outside of Christ. But in Christ, there is no distinction whatsoever. We are one. And those those heretics started losing their grip. Losing their grip. How do we... How do we force them to do our, our feasts, our Sabbaths, our laws, our festivals if they are already fully assured that they have the inheritance of the saints? They have the light kingdom that God would give. They have that already in Christ. That is what Paul is saying. He's saying, he gave you, Gentiles, the same inheritance as us in light. He goes on. He said, really, he's, he's now conditioning that. What does that look like? How do the Gentiles? How do? How does anybody? How does a lost sinner come to become inherited with and receive all of the glorious promises that God ever spoke through His Word that would become uh, reality through the Messiah? And the answer is this: that He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and, and uh, uh, from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. It was within the power of emperors and great kings of old to be able to pick up and transplant people groups. We see that happen in part of the exile of of Israel in the Old Testament. We see that happen in Samaria, that they took some of their their Assyrian people and sent them down into Israel and planted them there and they became a mixed race. So it is that when a king wants to bless a people that are maybe losing resources, that 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 they're failing to thrive, he can pick them up from death and darkness of a valley and put them somewhere glorious that their lives might thrive. And so it is that God has done for every soul that is in Jesus Christ. He transplanted your soul. From a domain, a a dominion of darkness, the the ruling authority was darkness. He took you from there and he placed you into the kingdom of his beloved son, the kingdom of God that that would start with Jesus' life, death and resurrection and remain open for all those who come by faith. But the insult again is to the, the legalistic Judaizers and the pagan cultists and the philosophers of wisdom that are trying to tempt the Colossian church Paul said every single one of us before we were in Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, was under the domain of Satan. You were in the kingdom of Satan whether you were circumcised Jew or a pagan-worshipping Gentile. You were and you are, in other words, if you're still outside of Christ, he's saying to the heretics, if you're you're the, the most glorious, wise, amazing philosopher you are in utter darkness, groping around like a child at midnight, looking for the toilet. You have no clue. You are, in fact, not just in the realm of darkness, but this language of domain, and this is personal language, like darkness is a nickname for a person, take a guess. He's saying that you're actually under the control, under the authority of Satan. You're in his domain. But the transfer occurs by God's grace into his son's Beloved Kingdom, It is a glorious thing to realize this powerful work of God. So he's saying that, that you have been delivered, picked up from darkness to light. Now, Acts 26, verse 16 and 18, Paul is recounting what Jesus said to him that day that he fell off his horse when he met Jesus. He says that Jesus said to him, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of, of God, sorry, from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Goodness, that's the same language he's using in Colossians. This is, a, this is the big picture gospel of Paul. But God is a rightful king over an entire world of sinful rebels and criminals that throw the finger to him, dismay his image, hate his law and burn down his world in unrighteousness and with allegiance to their new prince, Satan. And God in his grace did not come and destroy the world outright, not with a flood, not with a fire, not with immediate death, but God in grace sent his son And the Son did not even come to punish. The Son did not come to condemn, but the Son of Man came that the world might find life through Him. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. God the Son in flesh did not come with vengeance, but to absorb God's vengeance. That He came and established in His blood and then through His resurrection a new kingdom. The, The broad news of the gospel is this, that the kingdom of Satan is destroyed and failing and crumbling now. It's on its way down. That the kingdom of man is putrid and is corrupted and will one day be destroyed. But the kingdom of God is open and glorious and growing and eternal. And every single sinner is invited to come and feast at the king's table. That's the the kingdom good news of the gospel. But it's just a little bit too zoomed out for my liking. And like me, Paul zooms back in. I'm glad that he did that. I I like Paul. He says that there's this glorious kingdom news of the gospel, and then he zooms in and makes it visual. He says, not only have you been transferred from kingdom to kingdom, the, the power of Satan to the power of Christ, Christus Victor, but he also pushes in and says, and your sins have been forgiven and you have been delivered. You have redemption. This is all important. This is, in fact, uh, the, 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 the crux on, upon which everything hinges. The fact that you are individually saved of your sins, the the fact that you are individually forgiven of your sins and offered the amnesty of God, offered the peace of God to enter the kingdom, is not ultimately because Jesus beat Satan. It's not ultimately because God weakens the demonic realm. It's not ultimately because Jesus started a kingdom. It's not even ultimately because you've been born again. It's not ultimately because you're a new creation. God could have done all of those things. Taken Satan off the throne, given you a new heart, started a new life, given you a clean slate, disarmed the demons, put Jesus on the throne, given you all citizenship into the kingdom of Jesus. And you know what? When you die, you still have eternity in hell to pay for your sin. The key The crux, the heart of the good news of the gospel is that in coming to the earth, Jesus personally and truly took upon himself individual sins into his account. This is the reality of imputation. The the accounting, the reckoning, the, the sharing of our sins unto Christ, into his account. So that he was treated, he was reckoned, accounted by God, a sinner, and crushed so. It was the pleasure of God, Isaiah 53 tells us, to crush his son because by crushing his son, he can give a righteousness to many sinners. By raising Jesus Christ, he has now taken away our sin, punished it in Jesus and gives to us his righteousness. We are justified. This is the good news of the forgiveness of sins. Without a gospel that centers on that truth called penal, substitutionary atonement, without that, There is no gospel. Without that, in fact, even where that becomes a part of it but not central, you have a satanic gospel. I can prove it. Because in Matthew, Satan offers everything else that the gospel offers to Jesus and his people. Just not the cross. Satan says to Jesus, here's all the kingdoms. You'll be king. You can give life to whoever you want. You can apply your law however you want. You'll be king. This will be the 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 king of the, the kingdom of the beloved son. You can have it. Get rid of the darkness. Get rid of me. I'll call my demons away. Rule the entire world. Just don't go and satisfy the wrath of God on the cross for the sins of the people because then they cannot make it to heaven. Then they will not be God's friends. They will still be destroyed under His wrath. Satan had no problem with a gospel that doesn't include and center on the propitiation of God's wrath, the, the satisfaction of the law of God. But good news to every soul that hears this truth. Both are true. That Jesus has forgiven you. That Jesus can forgive you if you're not yet in Christ. That he can be the source of salvation both now now such that you're transferred into his kingdom and forevermore because you're redeemed from your sins and never have to worry about the payment coming up. It is done. Jesus has finished. God is satisfied in the work of his son. That is the good news that Paul knows. That is the good news that I pray and I hope and I beg and I exhort that you know truly. Don't just try and deepen your knowledge. Extend your your Christian obedience now, fill up your church obligations. Don't just try and do that. Be sure that you have truly been ex- uh, transferred, transplanted from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And how? Be sure that you have looked on Jesus' death and resurrection and called on Him to save you. That is the decisive moment. Let's pray. Father God, it is such an encouraging prayer to hear from Paul not that we might strive and receive your grace, not that we might change and therefore be uh, allowed into your kingdom, but that having been forgiven by grace alone, having been justified by faith alone, having an atonement that satisfies your wrath in Christ alone, we can now, knowing that, chase after good works. Knowing that we're forgiven we can chase after obedience. Knowing that we're righteous, we can chase after, uh, after righteousness in our life. Father God, I pray that you would help us to get that order right. I pray that you would make us joyful, thankful, filled with praise because of the reality that Christ is the King and that He has, through your work, brought us into the kingdom of salvation. And Father God, would you fill us with the knowledge of that and then fill us with obedience because of that knowledge. Where there are people who do not believe this, God, Would you be gracious and merciful and give to them the heart of faith that calls on Jesus Christ? Would you please transfer them in your mercy and in your undeserved grace into the kingdom of light from where they now live in darkness? We pray this, God, in in Jesus' name. And the whole church said, Amen.